Father, I thank you that you are holy, that there is no one like you, there is none beside you. God, and we do pray, just thinking of the lyrics of that song, that you would open our eyes in wonder as we study your word tonight. I pray, Lord, for your grace to be upon us, for your glory to fill us, for your spirit to be our teacher. I ask, Father, just that we would be able to hear your voice tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time, because it wasn't last week, I don't even know if it was the week before. Um, yeah, that was, that, yeah, so it was like a while ago. Last time we were in 1 Samuel, we saw David fleeing from Saul to the Philistine city of Gath. Uh, when he was recognized by some of those who served the king, uh, David pretended to be crazy. He started clawing at the walls and letting spittle run down his beard in order to, uh, well, you know, not get dead. In the process, the king well believed him and said, hey, why are you bringing this crazy guy? Get him out of here. So they got him out of there. And David moved on. That's what the first verse of chapter 22 says. David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, so he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you, till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. I find this interesting. The men who gathered to David... Um, they were distressed. They were in debt. They were discontented. The, the word there actually means they were bitter of soul. And these became David's mighty men that we will read about a little later on. I believe we get their testimony up in 2 Samuel. And just uh, the ragtag, the, you know, not the best, as it were. But these are the guys that served David loyally. They died for him. When David lamented, he wanted water from the city of Bethlehem. We're going to see that in a few chapters. They're the ones that went and broke through the lines of the enemy just to get him a cup of cold water. These dudes... I mean, that, that's, that's some fierce, fierce loyalty. But, you know, they weren't, what do you call it? The cream of the crop? They weren't at the top of the barrel? And I think we see a lot of this today, don't we? We see a lot of people who are distressed in our world. Uh, there are plenty of times that I'm one of them. We see a lot of people who are in debt. And maybe not even, you know, monetarily, 
although that, that is pretty rampant too, uh, but people who are unforgiving and therefore they are in debt to God for their sins. And we see a lot of people who are bitter of soul, maybe from refusing to offer forgiveness, maybe because they see the world and they're tired of what they see. But what did they do? Well, they went to David because they were longing for a better kingdom. We go to Jesus because we are longing for a better kingdom. David provides for the safety of his parents during this time, taking them down to Moab. And that's kind of interesting because for the most part, the Israelites and the Moabites were not on friendly terms. But uh, anybody want to remember who David's grandmother was or his great-grandmother? Ruth. The Moabitess. Was his grandmother or great-grandmother? Is that what it was? I'm, I'm going back to the book of Ruth because I wanted... Um, this is the genealogy. Haran, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Nashom, Solomon. Solomon. So we got Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. So Ruth was Obed's mother. Uh, therefore, she would have been David's great-grandmother. So just by way of let's connect how amazing the Bible is, there's a really good chance that David had met her. That at some point in time, he met his great-grandmother, Ruth. Because we're not told how old Ruth was when she died. I think that's kind of cool. Just me? Am I the only one? I think it's cool. Uh, this cave of Adullam is between Gath and Bethlehem. And also, by this time, Bethlehem was occupied by the Philistines. So not only was David trying to get his family away from Saul who probably would have used them to get to him if he could. Um, he also got them out of the city that was now occupied by the Philistines. Gad tells David, we got to get out of here. David says, sounds like a plan. Verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captives of, captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this we just see the madness of Saul escalating. He accuses his fellow Benjamites, remember Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, of conspiring against him. He accuses them of knowing that Jesse had made a covenant with David and not telling him. He accuses them, uh, he accuses his own son of stirring up David to kill him. Was any of that true? None of it. Not a bit. Jonathan was loyal to David, but he never encouraged David to kill his father. The Benjamites probably had no idea that David and Jonathan had made this agreement. And how about 
The bribery, I like the bribery. Is the son of Jesse going to give you fields and vineyards and make you captains over thousands and captains over the hundred? Right? Oh, if you let this guy become king, think of all that you're going to lose out on because the tribe of Benjamin will no longer be the royal tribe. Just crazy to me. There's not one of you who is sorry for me. Oh, poor soul. There's not one of me that reveals to me that my son has stood up my servant against me. You don't care. You don't care about what that bad old son of mine did. You don't care about the son of Jesse. He's not going to give you anything. I, he's just, he's gone. There, there ain't nothing left. We, left. we left our house tonight. And my wife pointed out that I left a porch light on, which is something we don't usually do. And I said, the lights are on, but nobody's home. That's all. At this point in time, I'm not even sure the lights are on. There might be a candle flickering somewhere, but I'm not even sure the lights are really on. He is just gone. Verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Now, if you remember, we saw him a couple chapters back, and I told you he would become very important. We saw Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, and I saw, or to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent and called Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were with Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. So Doeg says, hey, Ahimelech helped him out. Sends, calls Ahimelech and his whole family. And he gets accused of conspiring with David. And Ahimelech's defense is, uh, first off, what is your problem? David is the most faithful among your servants. Just, I'm just throwing that out there. He is not conspiring against you. Secondly, I didn't do anything wrong. He told me he was on your errand, right? I don't think that, it doesn't actually say that here, but because I had no idea that you hadn't sent him. I had no idea. I didn't inquire for the Lord for him. I didn't do anything to conspire against you. I didn't know anything about this, little or much. Now, a sane man would have gone, well, I guess it's possible that David lied while he was running away from me. You know what, Ahimelech? Maybe, maybe you really didn't do this. Instead, in verse 16, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Why? There's nothing. The king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, 
because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Um, I do want you to notice that every time Lord is used in this passage, it's actually the name of God. So Saul still, in, somewhere in his madness, understands that Jehovah is real. Understands that these priests are the servants of the one true God. And he doesn't care. His guards, however, are like, uh-uh. I'm having none of that. They wouldn't lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doag, you do it. You turn and kill the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also, Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, sheep, with the edge of the sword. Now, I want you to think about that. These are not foreigners. This, this is not a city of the enemy. These are Israelites. This is where the tabernacle of God is standing. These are the, the wives and children of the priests. Doag had no problem with it. You know, I imagine after he died and came face to face with God, it was a really bad day for him. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you shall be safe. I just... This is one of those things, and i got a couple notes here I'll share with you in a moment, but this is one of those things that just boggles my mind. That, that Doeg, he was an Edomite, but that just means he was a relative of Israel. He was a descendant of Esau. Why? Right? He, he at some point in time was some sort of believer in the one true God because he was in the tabernacle for some sort of ceremony. We don't know what it was, but it was some sort of ceremony. And when Saul goes nuts and tells his guys to kill the priests and they refuse, Doeg just has no problem with that. I'll murder them. I'll murder the rest of these, their families, their wives, their children, their babies, their livestock. He, he didn't care. Just astounding. What I do find very interesting is David takes the blame. Right? Was it David's fault? It's not David's fault that Saul's crazy. It's not David's fault that Doeg is a slime ball. That's not David's fault. But he took responsibility for it. Because he knew, he said, I knew that Doeg was going to do something like this. I think that is a sign of leadership, a sign of humility. But we have one guy who escaped. Um, Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And David said, you'll be safe. 
you can stay with me. Uh, one thing I would like to add before we move into the next chapter is that Ahimelech was the son of Ahitub, who was the son of Eli. And if you remember, uh, the Lord, through Samuel, told Eli that his entire family line would be wiped out. And here we see it happening. Chapter 23. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Oh, sorry. I lost my place. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So this is kind of interesting. Um, it's like the eighth time I've said that tonight. I'm going to try to stop using that phrase. Uh, so David hears Keilah's in trouble. Uh, he, they were stealing from the threshing floor. So we talked about this in Ruth, um, right? They would usually put the threshing floor on top of a hill because they needed a place that was windy. They would gather all the grain there, and then they would use their winnowing forks, and they would flip the grain up in the air, and the chaff was lighter than the grain. So the, the, the breeze would carry the chaff away, the grain would fall back down to the floor, and they would do that till all the grain was threshed. Well, the problem was, is right, most of the men are out in the, in the fields harvesting, even some of the women, but they would take the grain up there and leave it there for when they were going to thresh. So the Philistines, I could just see it. The Philistines are kind of watching that pile on the threshing floor for Kila get higher and higher and higher, and they were like, oh, it's a good time. Let's go steal us some grain. And Kila, they could not defend themselves. Now, this was only about four miles from where David was hiding. So he asks, should we go down? And God says, yep, go down. And he goes to the men and said, all right, God says we should go down. And they went, uh-uh, we're not safe in our own country because the king is trying to kill us. Now you want us to go fight against the Philistines? So David goes back and he inquires of the Lord again. And the Lord says, go. So they go, they deliver Keilah, and they actually take away all the livestock of the Philistines. So, score. I get that the men were afraid. I understand that. There's only 400 of them um, at that point. They're gonna, there's going to be a few more in not too, too long. But, um, but they were told by God to go. That simple. Uh, when we went back and we talk about Balaam, when Balak hired him to curse the Israelites, God told him not to go. And then the people came back, and he said, but Lord, they're offering me a lot of money. And the Lord said, okay, you can go. But that was not God's perfect way. That was his permissible way. Here, God reveals his will twice, and David says, no, we're going. And the men even though they were afraid, they followed him. Right? I talked about the loyalty of these guys. I think it's, it's just fantastic. 
How does it go in Keilah? Not very well. Verse 6, it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with the ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Don't ever say that God has given you the opportunity to sin. That's not what God does. Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. A lot of thanks, guys. And David and his men, about 600, uh-oh, we grew, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. And it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. So this is probably what this looked like. Um, um, Abiathar had taken the ephod. This was probably like the priestly garment that he had taken. And if you remember correctly, the priestly garment had the urim and the thummim. And it is believed, we don't know exactly what it is, but it is believed that the Urim and the Thummim were a type of lot, like dice that they would cast. One they think was black, and one they think was white. One meant yes from the Lord, one meant no. So he asked the question, will Saul come down? And then Abiathar would have reached in and he pulled out whichever one meant yes, he will come down. Oh, okay. Will they deliver me? Will the men of this town, and I just saved their behinds, will they deliver me into Saul? And then he pulled it out. Yes, they're going to deliver you to Saul. And I imagine David was like, fine. <laughs> I guess we'll leave. And he does. Him and his 600 men, and they escape. When they, uh, Saul finds out, um, he lets up. But what I think is important is this was probably very obvious to David and his men. He knew Saul was coming after him. He knew the men of Keilah weren't going to die for him. But what did he do? He still inquired of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 16.11, which is quoted in Psalm 105, verse 4, said, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Psalm 34.10, The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Isaiah 31.1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. What I think is wonderful about these scriptures and what we're seeing of David is I've been in many situations where the answer seemed plain as day. Well, yeah, clearly that's what we should do. Clearly we should go left. Clearly we should take that job or quit that job. Or clearly we should panic, right? It's the time to panic. Anybody hit the panic button? You guys ever watch, um, uh, what's, the, what's the show we like? Nailed it. Anybody ever watch Nailed It? 
Nailed It is a fun show on Netflix. And, and, and basically, um, these people who aren't bakers have to bake something that was created by a master chef or a master pastry chef, Jacques Torres. And they do a really bad job of it. They do a really, really, really bad job of it. Um, I had a point. Anybody remember what my point was? Oh, thank you. That's my, why I married you. That and you know, several other reasons. But in that, they get, they get a point where um, if they're having a really hard time, they can't figure something out, the recipe's giving them trouble, their cake didn't arrive, whatever it is, they can push the panic button, and Jacques Torres, the master chef, will come and help them for three minutes. Right? Sometimes you get to that point where it's time to push the panic button. Uh, I don't know what else to do. It's Right? Clearly. And what are we told? Why would you go after Egypt? Why would you trust in horses? Why would you trust in chariots? Who cares that they're strong? But you don't seek the Holy One of Israel. And I think that applies to us today. I don't care how clear it is, how obvious it is, how easy one path may seem over the other. We seek the Lord. We let him tell us. And we follow his My wife and I were talking a little bit about this earlier, and I said, you know, he's never let us down. Don't think he's going to start now. Verse 14. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw... The Saul had, I can't wait till Saul dies. And the, I'm just telling you, we, every time his name is in a passage, we have like eight S's in the same verse. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Now, I have to make a quick comment. The last time we were in Samuel, um, I said that when David and Jonathan spoke, that it was the last time they would see each other. I apparently was incorrect. Now, I realized this in preparing for the study, um, I really want to blame a commentator. There was a commentator that I was reading, or actually listening to, uh, on that passage who said that, and I'm like, oh, very cool, and I wrote it down, um, and I didn't look ahead to make sure. I was not a Berean, right? The Bereans, they received the word uh, with enthusiasm, but they checked daily to make sure those things were so. I should have read a couple chapters down. So that was my oops. Uh, I apologize for that. Um, this might be the last time. Uh, do remember that James reminds us that, you know, nobody is perfect in their words. Uh, but in this exchange, I, you got to love Jonathan. He's like, David, my dad ain't going to touch you. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And even, right, you're going to be king, and my father knows it. Ooh. The two of them made a covenant. And David went back to the woods, and Jonathan went to his house. 
but what's pretty cool about this is we will see David keep this covenant because Jonathan's going to be dead in a few chapters. He dies at the end of 1 Samuel uh, along with his father, right? So the idea that, that he had betrayed his father when he was willing to fight and die by his side, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, but the covenant essentially, and we talked about it last time, was that David would treat any descendants of Jonathan fairly, and he did. He took care of them. And Jonathan clearly pledges his loyalty to David as the king and offers to be by his side. Essentially, at this point, now he does betray his father. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his sight life for my sake will find it. And I find that fascinating, that idea. Is Jesus telling us that we shouldn't love our parents? No, he told us we should honor our mother and father. Is Jesus telling us we shouldn't love our children? Not at all. He's talking about priorities. He must be first. He must be first in our lives. It's not that I shouldn't love my parents or my wife or my kids or my cat. It's that I should love him more. It's not that I shouldn't be loyal to my family, but I should be more loyal to him. And I think Jonathan is demonstrating what that looks to like to us on a very practical level. When he talks about taking up our cross and following after him, right? if we're not willing to do that, we're not worthy of him. What does he mean? Well, the cross is a symbol of surrender. Right? If you're mine, you'll surrender to me. If you're mine, you'll submit to me. He who finds his life will lose it, but if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it, right? If you want to hold on so dearly to those things that you don't want to surrender to him, well, in the end, that's going to cost you. But if you let it all go and say, God, it's all yours. It's all yours. I'm just going to, I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit to your will. It's all yours. When we do that, well, then we find our life. I think we find our real lives, our true lives. A lot of people talk about, um, okay, not a lot of people. A lot of the people I read talk about um, our authentic self. Has anybody ever heard that phrase? Our authentic self, right? We have, um, we have the self that we present to other people, and then we have our authentic self. And God, in wanting us to be whole, in finding our identity in him, wants our authentic self to be our only self. Because when we find our identity in him, when we lose our life surrendering to him, well, then we find who we are truly supposed to be. That is our authentic self, and that's who we should present to everybody. You guys shouldn't see one Jason here and a different Jason at home, 
and a different Jason at Walmart. You might see a different Jason on the pickleball court, but I usually have to repent over that because God wants us to be whole. And this is not a, he wants us to be healthy and he wants us to be rich and all of that. No, he just wants us to be fully who he created us to be. And the only way that's going to happen is when we completely surrender ourselves to him. Sounds really good, doesn't it? A lot easier to say it than to do it. I know that for a fact. But it is a worthy pursuit. It is a worthy pursuit. Verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul. Man, David can't catch a break. They come up to Saul at Gibeah saying, hey, guess what? David's hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hachalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon. Therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down. And on our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hands. Come on, people. Listen to Saul's disgusting response. Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I am told he is very crafty. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went as if before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Moan. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Moan. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David, and went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David and his men went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. So you got to picture the scene, right? David's staying with the Ziphites, his own clan. We are in Judah at this time. And they're like, you know what? Saul's still king. We don't know what's going to happen. Let's rat David out. They go to Saul and go, hey, guess what? David's hiding down in the woods. And Saul goes, all right, you go find where he is at. I want exact location. Then you come back and tell me, you bring people who actually saw him there, and then I'll come down with you. Saul tells them, blessed are you of the Lord. What disgusting hypocrisy. He is trying to murder an innocent man. And he says, blessed are you of the Lord. David and his men find out and they flee. Saul continues this pursuit in this wilderness of Moan. Now, here's the deal, right? You had this mountainous area, but there was a huge ravine. So it was almost like, I mean, the only way I can picture it is like a, a, a big volcanic crater, right? So they were in the mountains, but there was a huge ravine underneath. Um, maybe picture it like David was on 
W Mountain, and Saul was on Signal Hill, right? But it was worse than that. Well, what Saul figured out, well, we can't cross the ravine to one another. There's no way down the other side. So he sent some of his men one way, and he took some of his men the other way, thinking they were going to trap David. But it wasn't a small area, so this wasn't something that could be done in an hour. In that process, the Philistines attacked. And Saul has to break off from pursuing David to go and deal with the Philistine attack. So I want you to consider this. We're going to stop. I was going to try to get to chapter 24, but we're not. We're going to stop in chapter 23. But I want you to consider this. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know that God had left Saul and was with David. So here, God allows or even orchestrates the Philistines to attack the Israelites so Saul has to stop pursuing David because he had him in a trap. He had him in order to protect David. Now, what we're going to take away from that, or what we should take away from that, is that uh, going back even to what we saw with the, the folks from Keilah, we don't always understand why God does the things he does. We don't always understand the situations that God allows to arise. But we can always trust that he's in control. We can always trust that he's going to work everything out. Now, if you're anything like me, the, the part where you wait for that is um, very frustrating. <laughs> but he still calls us to trust him. I was doing my devotions this morning, recording them, and uh, it was in Mark chapter 9 where I find one of my most favorite prayers in all of scripture. His dad brings his demonic, possessed son. His disciples can't cast it out. Jesus comes down. And the guy looks at Jesus and says, if you can do anything, will you do it? And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible to those who believe. And the guy says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't think God gets angry with us when we struggle. I don't think God gets angry when we falter or when we have doubts. I think he gets angry with us when we're not honest or when we refuse to surrender to him. And even then, because he's compassionate and loving, he corrects us lovingly. Unless we get real dumb, and then he corrects us a little more harshly. But in that process, I think when we cry out, Father, I believe, help my unbelief, well, I believe he does. Because he's done it for me many, many times. So with that, David ends up in En Gedi, which it's a really cool name. It means rocks of the wild goats. What should we name our town? Goat Rock. Yes. Yeah, you know, I just that's that's what they named it. 
Um, but uh, we'll, we'll pick up there. Not next week, not the week after, or the week after that. We will come back to David and 1 Samuel 24 on January 4th. Because uh, next week we will be, uh, we have a special message from our elder Pat and worship being led by Elder John. And we have the following week is Christmas week. And so that Wednesday we're doing a Christmas message, which leads us up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And the following week, I'm going to be on vacation. <laughs> At least that's the goal. Um, so we're not going to have a Wednesday night service that week. So we're just on a major cliffhanger. What happens to David? We'll find out on January 4th. Of course, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. He's okay. Saul doesn't get him. It's like that scene from uh, The Princess Bride. He stops reading and he goes, uh, which part was it? Is it the, oh, the eels. The shrieking eels don't get her at this time. What? You looked concerned. I just want you to know the shrieking eels don't, I, I, what was it? Anyway, Princess Bride, great movie. Father, thank you for your great love. Father, I, I just want to pray two things for all of us tonight. First, God, give us the wisdom to always seek you. To never have this idea that, that we can figure it out on our own, that we can find our own direction, that we can come up with our own answers and solutions. Give us the wisdom to always seek you. And I pray for those situations where we need to seek you. Well, we should always seek you, but specifically the ones where we may be struggling, that we would trust that even if you have to bring the Philistines against a city to work things out, you will. Lord, you're going to do whatever you need to do to work things out for us. Help us to surrender to you while we wait. In Jesus' name.